We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 253. Our guest today is the executive director of the Equitarian Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization with the mission to sustainably improve the health and welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules. Working equids, as they are referred to, do so much for our economy, which is so much bigger than the equestrian industry. So here to talk today about this amazing organization, here is our guest, Annie Henderson. I am excited to talk about Equitarian Initiative, but first, take me back to how you first found yourself in the horse world. Sure. Um, You know, honestly, it's kind of an unromantic story as to how I got in the position I am. I grew up as an equestrian. Um, I, you know, did the backyard pony thing, did the showing, um, really just, just had all the fun with it. Um, and it's something that's always been near and dear to my heart. Obviously, as I got older, as we know, uh, being in the equestrian world can be somewhat cost prohibited. So it's something that when I was in college, uh, I let go of a little bit. And I started working in the nonprofit sector. Um, And I ultimately ended up going to graduate school and received a degree in nonprofit management. Um, And it was just before that, that I met a gentleman named Dr. Jay Merriam, who is the co-founder of the Equitarian Initiative. And um, we, you know, we got to talking about the work that he was doing and he invited me to come work with them as a, in a consulting basis. And the rest is kind of history. The work uh, kind of gets under your skin and mm-hmm. <laughs> you drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So here I am. Um, I, I started with these guys in 2016. So here I am nearly six years later, um, just absolutely loving it. Amazing. That's so exciting. And yeah, I feel like it's like a full circle situation. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely allowed me to return to the equine world, albeit in a somewhat non-conventional way. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, now you're the executive director of the Equitarian Initiative, um, which for anyone listening who is is not familiar with it, it's a nonprofit with the mission to sustainably improve the health and welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules. So tell me a little bit more about the organization, how it kind of came to be, and why it's so important. Sure. Um, So as I mentioned, Dr. Jay Merriam is one of the co-founders of the Equitarian Initiative. Him and a woman named Dr. Julie Wilson, um, both of them obviously veterinarians, um, came together. They had, they had been doing some of this work on their own in that uh, Julie Wilson was going to Honduras to on, on ultimately service trips to provide care for working animals. In addition to providing education with the local university, um, Dr. J. Merriam had been working in the Dominican Republic. He has a program called Project Samana, which he actually just got back from last week. And he's been in that area, gosh, I think he's on his 27th or 28th year down there. Um, so he had been doing this quite a while. Um, those two got together as colleagues and recognized that mutual passion for the work. And in 2010, they formed the group. 
and uh, hosted the first Equitarian workshop in Mexico. And then the organization was officially incorporated as a 501c3 in 2013. So at which point they assembled the board of directors and all, all the things that you do in order to have a functioning nonprofit. Since then, you know, the, those board members really, the initial board members that is really largely constituted of people who were interested in leaving their own programs as well. So what ended up happening is we have this incredibly passionate group of veterinarians who got together and started forming programs and started finding volunteers to go do this work and, you know, headed overseas and, and did the darn thing. So um, that's kind of how, how these guys got started. There's a lot of interest in the industry. Um, and so they really helped kind of create the venue for this particular issue um, alongside of, it must be mentioned with the help of the American Association of Equine Practitioners, the AAP and their philanthropic arm, which is the uh, foundation for the horse. Um, they've okay. been our largest supporters alongside of us the whole time. Oh, that's so cool. And I feel like many of our listeners and myself included likely experience horses for pleasure and not really in a working context. So I would love to know how the Equitarian Initiative defines, you know, what, what they would define as a working horse. Yeah, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Um, the horses that we see for the most part here in the United States are our pets, they're, they're sport horses, they're for pleasure, um, you know, they're, they're lawn ornaments in some cases, if they're lucky. And the animals that we are working with are, as you said, working animals. So they ultimately are responsible for contributing to the livelihood of the people who own them. Mm -hmm. um, so we see that in the form of the horses that, you know, a lot of us who have gone on vacation overseas, you know, you've seen these animals being used for tourism we see them in agriculture, whether that's subsistence agriculture or, you know, kind of the, the trade and commerce side. Um, an example, we work with a lot of animals down in Costa Rica who work in the palm oil industry. So, yeah, you see them for, for draft purposes. The general just transportation, um, a lot of the places where we go, these people and these communities we work with, you know, they don't have a car. And even if they did... Um, they may not have access to fuel or a tractor for that matter. Sure. So the animals are are true horsepower in in the in every literal sense of the word. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, you know, the one of the big ones is just the daily chores, um, which often is something that in a lot of the communities where we go falls on the shoulders of the women. And so women utilize these animals regularly to offset some of the physical labor that's involved. Um, so they're, they're incredibly important for uh, not just, you know, the actual work, but kind of some of the, the social implications and, and uh, alleviating some of the, the very physical burdens. What, what are some common issues or, you know, like health issues or that you kind of see with these working animals? A lot of what we see are preventative health issues mm -hmm. um, and hence why, why our intervention is so effective. Um, you know, a lot of times it can come down to things like malnutrition, um, improperly fitted tack. Um, hoof care is a huge challenge, um, but obviously something that is, has a somewhat simple remedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. We see in a lot of what we do, you know, we go and provide vaccinations, sea wormings. You're going to see in a lot of these areas, especially in the tropics, different parasites, um, you know, there's 
since these animals are working there, obviously everyone here in the U.S. is very used to their their animals experiencing lameness and, and those things. But, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to see that on a larger level because these animals as working animals are going to be pushed um, to a different extent and not necessarily get the same rest that's often required um, or that would be prescribed in the animals we see here because they're needed for income. Um, and, and the people who own them don't have much of a choice in that sense. I feel like people may think that maybe a lack in basic care for horses is an issue that only exists outside of the U.S., but you serve horses both in and out of the U.S. So what, what would you say are some of the barriers to basic care for horses and providers within the U.S.? Yeah, so we have one of our largest programs, which is on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Um, we have a second program on the Cheyenne River Reservation as well. Um, but Pine Ridge is our, our longest running program. And that is in conjunction with the Lakota tribe um, who are phenomenal horsemen and women. They're absolutely incredible. And, and their horses are, are treated beautifully. Um, mm. There's no doubt about that in um, the Lakota culture, horses are sacred. So in that sense, it's, it's some of the best, you know, the better cared for animals that you're gonna see across the United States. With that being said, you know, the, the largest barrier to care, it, it really comes down every time to poverty. We, in the areas that we go, you know, I think there's sometimes a misconception that in these other cultures, there may be poor treatment or abuse. And that's not to suggest that we've never seen anything like that, but, um, you know, that's, that's a widespread thing. Mm-hmm. Overall, the people that we work with care about their horses immensely. And, you know, not just as, as members of their family, but really as the vehicle um, for which they are able to put food on the table. So. It's a, it's a bit different of a relationship. So these people care immensely about these animals and their welfare, but really it comes down to a, the actual lack of resources and poverty, but then also that, that education. In, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a pretty staggering statistic. There's approximately 100 million working equids, which are the horses, mules, and donkeys um, in the world, and they represent 90% of the world's horse population. Mm-hmm. Um, but due to that lack of resources and a lack of resources to access people who are educated as veterinarians, uh, the working animals only receive 1% of the world's available veterinary care. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of where the, that kind of care and where the education is, is centered. Right, right. Let's break down the initiative a little bit more. Um, what are some ways that the Equitarian Initiative supports working horses? What services do you provide? Sure. You know, the most important thing that we do is to provide education. It's really the at the center of what we do and where we believe the opportunity to pursue sustainability really lives. Um, so for us, that comes in the form of working with the equid owners um, in the communities that we serve. Um, so to help them learn some very basic principles in preventative care and maintenance for their horses. We also work with veterinary students abroad. And in a lot of the, the places that we go, it's um, kind of an interesting side note. The, in, in veterinary colleges internationally, oftentimes, these animals, equines, don't make it into the agricultural index of these countries because there's not this physical transaction of goods like you'll see with something like beef, you know, or eggs or milk. And so they are not necessarily a major part of 
uh, veterinary curriculum. So we do a lot of work with veterinary schools um, and we're again primarily in Central and South America. We work with the veterinary schools and universities there to help bolster their curriculum where we're able and to take students on the trips. Um, in a lot of instances, some of those students have never touched a horse. Wow. Um, so we give them that hands-on experience. Um, we also have students who join us from the United States on certain programs, um, which is, you know, a, a great opportunity for them again to, to drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Yep. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it's, it's really, you know, education to me is the first and foremost driver of what we do. And again, to achieve sustainability, if we're helping people locally, then they are ideally able to better help themselves. The other services outside of education that we're providing that are kind of the physical in-field services, we have stations set up for surgery, which is mm-hmm. oftentimes largely castrations, but we see a myriad of, of wounds and issues that come to us. Um, we do dentistry, farriery, as I mentioned, is a really big um, part of what we do. Um, internal medicine. So that's kind of the vaccinations, dewormings, parasite control. Um, we have intake and physical exams where we're looking at body conditions for, you know, general wound management. Nutrition is something that we look at, though we're always looking to grow. And then if we have the people with the expertise on a particular trip with us, we'll even do tack and harness fitting. Wow. How often do you have these trips? Well, since the pandemic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> A little less often. Um, most of the programs run once to once to two times per year, depending on the program. And some of them are accompanied by an educational program. An example in the U.S., our program in Pine Ridge, we have um, a, a week-long field service trip. So we're, that's where we're in the field actually um, providing those services I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then there's a second follow-up trip where we partner with the Ogallala Community College and actually have a class for the uh, local owners who want to participate um, again. And that's really in basic preventative medicine. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, your work is supported by a big network of volunteers at seems. So how do these volunteers kind of get incorporated into the initiative and, and how do they like, let's say anyone listening would be interested in learning more, taking part of it. How can they get more information? Yeah. So Really, the the best way is to, you know, follow us on all the various networks. Um, We are almost entirely volunteer ran, which is incredible. Um, We have we have the most amazing group of people who work with it and uh, passionate individuals. So we're really lucky in that sense. You know, we're in an interesting place where actually in the pandemic, we had a a great opportunity to step back and, and revise our strategic plan. And so we our, our system that we have in place is really, we call it a leadership development uh, program, which is that we're working to cultivate leaders in this field um, mm-hmm. across, the, across the, the world, really. So we have folks that come in to us as volunteers and we take, just to be clear, we take veterinarians, veterinary students, animal scientists, in some cases, barriers, veterinary technicians. Um, so it's uh, in terms of the, the, those are kind of where the volunteer opportunities are limited to or mm-hmm. those professions, just given the nature of our work. <laughs> so what we do is, is we have people who come in as volunteers. And like I said, a lot of people drink the Kool-Aid. This gets under their skin. It's something they develop just a passion for. And from there, those individuals, as I mentioned before, a big focus for us is on education. So a lot of our volunteers actually assume the position as instructors in the field. So they're responsible for teaching whatever demographic we're, we're working with on any given project. 
And then from there, we also train people to execute programs and be program leaders. Um, so in terms of those volunteerism roles, uh, we just encourage people to reach out to us. We have an application process, um, although, you know, obviously our capacity is somewhat limited and we're kind of getting back rolling from, uh, from COVID. So our programs are picking up again, but it was a slow go there for a minute. Wow. Yeah, I bet. I bet that really kind of changed the dynamic of things um, and being able to just kind of put a trip together and head out and, and do a lot of your work. So what, what did you what did you do in the meantime, like during that that downtime? What did that look like for you? Yeah, you know, it, there was a bit of a silver lining for us in the pandemic. And that was in no other scenario do I think we would have had the opportunity to or the forced opportunity <laughs> mm-hmm. to sit back and and see what was working and what wasn't in terms of sustainability. If our goal is to create sustainability, what happens if we have to step back for a year? Are those animals in those regions, uh, are they going to continue to receive some level of care? Is their health care going to decline? Um, those kind of issues. And what we found during that time is the programs that we had established that have incredibly strong community partners, which is a part of every project we have, we have people on the ground where we go. So I don't want to make it seem as though um, we're out there, (laughs) um, you know, tromping through the woods, finding these remote villages on our own. Um, We have folks on the ground doing that. And the the programs who had training from us and had that education, they continue to thrive because we could still share resources with them. We could still send funding to them. um, And they were able to then buy supplies and continue the work locally in their own communities without as much, you know, fear or, uh, you know, the, the concern about, mm. about people's health and safety and, and all the implications of people traveling. So right. that was a really huge lesson for us. So a lot of our programs, we were able to continue to provide funding and they were able to run. Um, some of the programs that were maybe a little more or a little less established or immature, just in terms of how, how long we've been in the area, those ones were, were tougher and, and were in a bit of a standstill. So it was a really great opportunity, you know, in a sense that we wouldn't have gotten that up, that, you know, opportunity otherwise to, to actually observe if sustainability is working or not. I don't know about you, but I feel like no matter where you live, your body find some time of year to be freezing cold. I grew up in Wisconsin, so obviously I experienced that to the fullest, but now that I live in Florida, I still get so cold in the winter. You probably know Red and Goat for their signature one-piece outerwear designs. I wear them all the time, but they've launched a schooling collection that you seriously have to try. Every piece is designed to be mixed and matched for head-to-toe looks that transition seamlessly from the barn to the rest of your life. Like they seriously have jogger breeches that are so brilliant. So while Redding Goat is absolutely the go-to for outerwear and they make the best rain suit, I swear by it, their new clothing pieces are incredible. If you like color block, you are going to love their styles. Go check everything out at reddingoatequestrian.com. That's R-E-D-I-N-G-O-T-E equestrian.com. Do you ever find maybe resistance from the communities you're working with? Are they open to what you support or what you do? Or do you feel like they sometimes aren't as receptive as you hope? Yeah, that's a great question, Bethany. 
We have absolutely found resistance in certain areas where we work. Typically, that is due to just a lack of trust, um, or maybe they've had experience with other organizations who are going to provide aid, but they come in, they provide some kind of aid and they leave um, without really returning to the region or having a certain kind of follow-up. What we found in the areas where we work that we're very, very committed to our communities. Mm -hmm. And so we stick with them um, for the long haul. And that creates a a sense of trust. And sometimes it takes years, you know, in, in establishing a new project, you may have what would feel like somewhat of a failure in terms of how many animals are coming in to see us at any given clinic. And it's just a part of the process because rightfully so, you know, these, uh, these individuals and these communities, you know, they are very concerned about the welfare of their horses. And in some cases they just don't maybe have the education to understand the full scope of our services or how that's going to benefit them. Um, So these are all things that we have to be really considerate of, but Ultimately, the, the biggest factor in making this work sustainable and, and having community involvement and input is really just that. You need to give it time. You need to demonstrate ongoing commitment. And you need to not come into these areas with an attitude of, we know what's best for you. You need to come in with an open approach that asks the communities where you're working, what is best for you? Um, and allow them to be, you know, the the driving force and and provide a narrative of what their perceived needs are. And that's where we can kind of meet in the middle and create meaningful work. But um, again, to kind of go in and, and assume that we have the answers, especially in these environments that we're not always used to with resources that are, are more limited in some cases, um, is really naive to do. Um, so that's something that we're really focused on. And again, the the idea of going in and vaccinate parachuting in as we call it and vaccinating a bunch of animals and leaving did we help or did we create some kind of learned dependency on a service that they may not have access to so that's where the education comes in and why it's so important that we have some real longevity in the places that we serve what is something that has maybe surprised you since beginning your work with the organization <laughs> oh man i'm sure you have um, a few <laughs> just, some of the things that have surprised me in this work. I think that I, alongside of most people who would, you know, be, have a background from the United States or other developed economies, um, if you will, is that I, I don't think I, I really recognize this issue. This isn't something I was taught as a young equestrian. This wasn't something that was on my radar. And like I said earlier, working animals are actually 90% of the world's horses. Mm. So, you know, we, we really do live in a bubble and and we're very fortunate and it's really important that we're, I think, quite aware of that privilege. I think that in turn, the other part of this that I found really interesting is just learning just how much product really started its journey on the back of a horse, mule or donkey, you know, um, things like I mentioned, bananas, coffee, chocolate, Uh, coconuts, you know, the list goes on and on, palm oil, of what actually a lot of the products that we use in our everyday, whether you're obviously a horse person or not, this issue goes beyond the equestrian world, but is really uh, a consumer issue that we're going to see. So these these animals are making a lot of our world economy 
go round. And yet, yet we have so little connection to that process and so little understanding of, of what it took to get some of these products to where they are. Um, so I think that, you know, that's kind of one of, one of many, uh, yeah. <laughs> many issues that I see, but that's, uh, that's one that was, it took me a while to wrap my head around. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even think about that, but that's yeah. So true. And for anyone that says like the use of what, you know, like workhorses is non-existent or like now that they're not used for transportation there, I mean, they're definitely still in use and just for that argument right there, like all of these, these huge, huge parts of our economy that really are at the basis used with these animals, with, with transportation of these goods is just incredible. And it's a really good reminder. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of a weird paradigm shift to think of it this way, but ultimately if you own a horse as, as a pet or for pleasure, um, you are actually in the minority um, and I think that's just something that sort of flips our our sort of narrative on its head a little bit. At least it did for me and what I grew up with. What was what would you say is something that you are passionate about about the industry that you feel other people either don't talk a lot about or don't know that much about? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> I think that you know it's kind of it's similar to what I what I just said. Um, in terms of the the widespread use of these animals. And I, I kind of hinted at this earlier. One of the things that I think is just really important for us as an organization who have um, a bit of a microphone on this that we need to continuously reemphasize is that the animals that we're seeing are not necessarily subject to things like abuse and neglect and you know, we were really careful an example about the images that we'll share on our social media, um, because somebody who's very well-intentioned without context, um, you know, when you see a horse that maybe looks somewhat emaciated, um, maybe they don't have that context. If that horse is emaciated, well, unfortunately, you should see the state of their children. Um, the people who own these animals are in a very challenging position of making decisions around feeding their animals or feeding their family. Um, so the circumstances are just so much more dire than I think what we can often wrap our heads around. I think that's a really important thing, again, that we have as an organization a responsibility to say on repeat somewhat that this is not, these animals are not necessarily, again, that there's exceptions to this, like there are everywhere. They're not exactly subject to abuse. This is, these are the circumstances, these are the outcomes, and this is what poverty looks like. So while the animal welfare component of this is really challenging at times, it's really, really challenging. Some of the cases that you're going to see in these areas. Um, and again, as hard as those animals are working, the human right next to them is as well. And so I think if there's anything that I can share with the larger industry, um, it, it deals in that concept mm -hmm. um, that we have to also look at this issue in the one health model, which is that concept that, you know, human, animal, and environmental health are all inextric inextricably linked, and right. they are all interdependent on each other, and these systems, they, they matter to each other. So human health is going to impact the ability to have sound animal health, is going to impact the ability to have sound environmental health, and they all feed into each other 
in a constant loop. So uh, when we look at this issue, while the animal welfare and what we tackle is incredibly important, you kind of need to zoom out on the bigger picture and look at the, the bigger concept of what health is. And so it's treating a whole system. And, you know, again, we can help an individual animal by going and providing a, a vaccination that's, that's phenomenal, you know, and we're, we're lucky to be able to do it. But we also, again, need to, to open our lens up a little bit and look on a more wide scale image, if, if you will. Yeah, that is such a good point and a really good reminder for sure. Well, Annie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the Equitarian Initiative and all of the amazing things that you're doing and just opening the eyes to an already pool of listeners who are horse obsessed. And I know um, <laughs> I know that I'm, I'm sure it pulls at so many people outside of the horse world um, to just see how, you know, they can help the, you know, help these animals and honestly help the humans, help the economy. Like there's so many other factors within the Equitarian Initiative, but especially for horse people, I think that really understand horses and how they live and, and all of the things and the, the services that they need in order to live happy and healthy lives, um, especially with workhorses. So thank you so much for all of the education that you provide and all of the work that you do. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Bethany. And thanks for having us on. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week.